Good morning. Merry Christmas. And it's, it is Christmas. Merry Christmas on Christmas. If I haven't met you, my name is Chase Jacobs. I am uh, the executive pastor here at Desert Springs. We're glad you're visiting with us. If you are, church, it is good to see you. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8 this morning. So if you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 8. We'll be starting in verse 18. And um, while you're turning there, church, uh, if, I, if I can, I just wanted to take a moment and thank all of you on behalf of my family. Um, if, you, if you didn't know, uh, my, my wife's dad passed away unexpectedly on December 10th, uh, so it's been a very difficult couple of weeks for us. Um, her dad, Ken, was a wonderful man, and he loved Jesus dearly, and so he has uh, entered into the joy of his master this morning, and we are very sad. Uh, it's been a hard few weeks for us, but I know that it would have been an unbearable few weeks if it had not been for all of you. So thank you so much for your prayer, for my family. Thank you for your incredible generosity to so many little acts of thoughtfulness and kindness towards us and, and big acts of thoughtfulness and kindness towards us. And thank you for your condolences. Thank you for grieving with us. We have felt that. We have felt you uh, mourning with those who mourn. So I will never really be able to tell you how grateful I am for all of you. And as we turn to our text this morning, it may strike you as a little surprising uh, that we settled uh, weeks ago on a Christmas morning text that is about suffering. But I have to say that in God's providence, this text has been very sweet for me and my wife because we are suffering. We have had this reminder in recent weeks of the effects of the fall on this world and how the curse of sin has worked its way into every fiber of our existence. So this morning, I feel well acquainted with grief and sorrow, and I know that I am not alone. And yes, I know it's Christmas, and we're supposed to be merry and bright. And hopefully we get there this morning. Hopefully this is not all a downer, but, but I know that so many of you are coming in this morning. And if you're being honest, maybe all of us are coming in this morning. And Christmas, at the very least, feels like something of a tension, if not an outright conflict. Because the reality of our life's circumstances are not quite lining up with what the Hallmark Channel tells us that Christmas is supposed to feel like. I know some of you are coming in this morning and this morning is a reminder of loss for you. It's a reason to be sad at broken relationships. This morning you feel uh, the fear of death looming or sickness or any number of other things. And yet we're in here and we're singing songs about rejoicing and being joyful. We're praying prayers of praise and that feels discordant. Well, friends, if that's you, that's what Christmas is actually about. That's what Christmas is. It is a tension. Jesus Christ 
came not because everything was merry and bright, but because we are all suffering. So if that's you this morning, this is right where you're supposed to be, and Christmas is your day. Now let's turn to this text in Romans chapter 8. I'll begin in verse 18, and we'll read through verse 25. The Apostle Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That's the word of the Lord. It's quite a privilege to get to uh, preach a Christmas sermon on Christmas Day. We are actually not going to have this experience of a Sunday Christmas morning until 2033. That's how leap year falls over the next couple of years. So take advantage of this. Enjoy this. It's going to be 11 years before you get to have a Sunday morning Christmas again. And I've talked about this uh, elsewhere, but I have always been fascinated by the fact that we celebrate Christmas on this day, December 25th, because the Bible makes no mention of what day Jesus was actually born. We don't know what day he was born. We don't even know what time of year he was born. But really early on in the church's history, they settled on this day, December 25th, to commemorate and remember the first coming of Jesus Christ. And we don't know why they did that. It was so long ago, we don't know the reasoning why they picked December 25th, but they, but they did. There's a few theories that are probably a pretty good one. Uh, one theory is that uh, there, there was a belief, and I, this is an extra biblical belief, but there was a belief that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit on the same day that he would later die on the cross. And that day was held to be March 25th, and so they believe that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary on March 25th, and then you count nine months from March 25th, and what do you get? Christmas. So that's one theory. Another theory is that it has to do with what was going on with the seasons at that time. March 25th was when the ancient Romans marked the winter solstice. The winter solstice is uh, the first day of winter, It is the point in the the year's annual wobble on its axis that the North Pole is farthest away from the sun. And so because of this, because of the way that the earth is facing, this is actually the day that the length of daylight is shortest and the length of night is the longest. So it is literally the darkest day on the calendar. 
but it is also the day from which an incredible reversal happens. Because every day after the winter solstice, the sunlight lasts a little bit longer into the night. It's like the, the light is beating out the darkness and it just kind of inevitably increases. The days get longer and longer until you get to the first day of spring when the days are finally longer than the night. And I just think that is an incredible metaphor for the coming of Jesus Christ. And the early Christians did too. Augustine of Hippo, he commented on this phenomenon more than once. He liked preaching Christmas sermons and he would bring this up. So one time in a Christmas sermon, Augustine said this. Hence it is that we say Jesus was born on the day which is the shortest in our earthly reckoning and from which subsequent days begin to increase in length. He, therefore, who bent low and lifted us up, chose the shortest day, yet the one whence light begins to increase. It's like this this creation is preaching to us this metaphor of what Isaiah said in chapter 9 that Ryan read for us already this morning. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now, of course, this metaphor only works if you celebrate Christmas in the northern hemisphere. (laughs) So for our brothers and sisters in Australia or Argentina, December 25th is is actually the summer solstice, so it's the brightest day of the year, so it kind of falls apart. And and really, again, we don't know why they picked December 25th, but I think that's kind of neat. And I think about it every time this year. Because God has woven into the fiber of creation this little reminder that when the darkness seems like it's winning, the light comes in. And it will march inevitably to the springtime. But it's three more months of winter, isn't it? As that that progress towards the sun winning out carries on its course as we are waiting for the days to get long again we have to sit in the cold and I think that this is an apt metaphor for what we're studying in this text this morning the big idea of the passage that I read for you it's really right there in the first verse in verse 18 so we're not going to break this up into different sub points there's I think just one big point here and it's what you see in verse 18 there Paul says For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. That's the thought that just dominates everything else. It's like the rest is just these tumbling thoughts that come out of this one idea. That there is suffering now. There is suffering in this present time. It is still the winter But there is glory coming. It is inevitable. We look forward to the spring that lasts forever. And when we endure our present suffering, we do so by considering and hoping in that glory that will be revealed to us because of Jesus Christ, because he has come and because he will come again. So let's begin by just looking really closely at verse 18. First, notice it just assumes suffering, doesn't it? 
Paul doesn't say, now if by chance you happen to come across some suffering in your life. Now what does he say? You are going to suffer. Actually, if you back up and look at the context of everything that's happening in chapter 8, you'll see that this is especially clear. If you just looked up to the, the previous paragraph, there Paul goes into this amazing stuff about how we've been adopted by God, that we are all sons and daughters of God if we have believed in Jesus Christ and received his Holy Spirit. And in verse 17, he says, now, if, if we're children of God, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So suffering is not just assumed in verse 18, but Paul has actually established that it is normative. It is necessary for the Christian life that you would suffer. And so this raises the question of what exactly Paul means by suffering. What does it mean to suffer with Christ? We could take this really narrowly and say that this is, this is really only suffering that is the direct result of being a Christian. So something like persecution. And that's certainly part of it, but I think it's broader in this context than what Paul is talking about. Because if you go all the way to the end of chapter 8, Paul actually gives us a list of the suffering that he has in mind. Look at 8.35. There he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Verse 38, he says, I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when Paul is thinking about the suffering that we have to endure as we wait for our future glory, it seems like he's just thinking of all of it. Now certainly some of that includes the suffering that is a direct result of you being a Christian. He mentions persecution, he mentions tribulation, affliction, that there will be a certain kind of suffering that you go through in your life by virtue of the fact that you have believed in Jesus Christ. And it may not be outright persecution, may not be martyrdom, it might be rejection, it might be unkind comments made by family members, it might be tension in friendships that was not there before you became a Christian. It might be the kind of suffering that you feel as a Christian by denying yourself by saying no to things that you would have said yes to before you became a Christian. The kind of suffering that you feel when you are resisting temptation and it gets hard. Or when you are mourning and grieving your own sin. That's all suffering that is a direct result of you being a Christian. That is you suffering with Christ. So Paul is thinking of that, but then he includes other things in this list like famine, and poverty, even death? Well, these are, these are things that, that come to us from the outside. These aren't a result of our being a Christian. These are just the result of being in a fallen world. This is just the suffering that you experience by being a human. This is the suffering that every human experiences, but I think Christians even experience that suffering differently than our non-believing neighbors. 
I think we suffer through these circumstances of living in a fallen existence with Christ because we suffer them differently than those who do not know God. And that's not to say that non-believers don't suffer. They do. But what that means is that Christians actually understand what's going on when we suffer. And it makes us even more sad. Because we know this is not the way that it's supposed to be. Our non-believing neighbors, they, they just have to think, well, this is the way it is. Such is life. But we Christians experience suffering, whether on our own lives or we see it with other people, and we say, how sad. It's not supposed to be like that. This is not how God made us. This is not what it's supposed to be like. So we even go through ordinary human suffering differently because of what we know. And our non-believing neighbors, they've, they've gotten used to the darkness that we live in. Have you ever had this experience where maybe you're reading or doing some kind of work in a room with windows? You started reading in the afternoon and you have just gotten wrapped up in what you're doing and you haven't noticed that the sun has been going down. And then somebody else walks into the room and they're like, why is it so dark in here? And they flip on the lights and you're like, oh gosh, what happened, you know? You got used to the darkness. But we Christians, we know what it's supposed to look like. And so we look at the world and we say, we need some light on in here. Now we need to understand and be really clear about what Paul is saying in verse 18. What he's not doing when he's saying the suffering of this present time isn't worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What he's not doing is he's not minimizing the suffering that we all go through. He's not saying, look, I know that you think it's bad, but it's really not a big deal. Get over it. He's not minimizing our suffering at all. Actually, what he's doing and what we as Christians have the freedom to do because we know how wrong this suffering is, is we can admit, we can grieve, we can say, this is really, really bad. Paul's not minimizing our suffering. What he's doing is he's maximizing our glory. Yeah, the suffering is bad, but you know what? What's coming is so good that it's going to make all of that suffering that you've gone through not even worth remembering because it's so good what's coming to us. And so we have to keep that intention. Like I said, that there is suffering. And we can't gloss over it. We can't just try to put it away. We can't ignore it. But no, as Christians, we actually need to say this is that bad. And it was because the people dwelt in darkness that a light shone on them. It was because we needed light that Jesus Christ came at Christmas. So what Paul isn't saying is that your suffering is insignificant. What he is saying is that your future is so significant. And the rest of this paragraph is just Paul considering those two things in contrast and encouraging us to think about the significance of what is coming for us. And now there's a few ways that we could look at the verses that follow, especially verses 19 to 23, but, but what I did, and I would encourage you, this might be a good exercise for you when you go home, or you can do this right now as you take notes. This is, this is what I did, is I just drew a little T chart in my journal, and on one side I wrote, the suffering of this present time, and then on the other side I wrote, the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
And then I just went through the passage and I wrote down all the things that Paul says about the suffering of this present time in one column and all the things that he says about the glory that will be revealed to us in the other column. And so I could kind of group those things together that way. So that's actually how we're going to pass through the rest of these verses now. And so first, let's just fill out that side that says the suffering of this present time. What does Paul say about our suffering? How bad is it? What is it that we're going through? What is this darkness? Well, he says in verse 20 that the creation was subjected to futility. That's part of this present suffering, the creation. So the the whole natural order, basically everything that isn't sentient, everything that uh, doesn't include angels and people, okay? Everything else, everything that God made was subjected to futility. And so we would ask, well, when did that happen? What is that referring to? Well, it's obviously the curse in Genesis 3. The curse that God imposed on the creation as a result of Adam's sin. So that's why Paul says that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. The creation didn't do anything. It's not the creation's fault that this has happened. It was Adam's fault as a consequence of their disobedience their failure to exercise the dominion that God had given to mankind. God curses the ground. He says thorns and thistles are going to come up. This, this has had effects that have spread through all of the natural order. This is why we have things like earthquakes and fires and famines and droughts and floods. Everything got thrown out of whack as a result of Adam's sin. It was a curse. So it was Adam's fault that creation was subjected to futility, but it was God's plan. That's why Paul says that it was subjected to futility in hope. And we see that in Genesis 3 too, don't we? That right after uh, the ground is cursed and the, the, the childbearing is cursed, that God puts a curse on the serpent. And he makes a promise to Adam and Eve that one of their offspring would one day destroy the devil and put everything back to right. So right there at the beginning when the subjection to futility happened, there was also this glimmer of hope that we are waiting for. But until that day, there is still futility. That word in Greek, it's the same word that translates the word meaninglessness or vanity in the book of Ecclesiastes. It just means this is not how it's supposed to be. It doesn't work. And no matter what you do, it's never going to work until it is fixed. It's futile. So we see that in verse 20. In verse 21, Paul says of this suffering of this present time that the creation is in bondage to corruption. Everything is enslaved to corruption, to decay. There is no escaping it. Things are going to wear out. Things are going to fall apart. People die. It's the law of entropy. Brings to mind for us Hebrews 2, where it says that we all are enslaved by our fear of death. We're enslaved. Everything is in bondage. In verse 22 of this suffering of this present time, Paul says that the creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth, even right up to this very moment. So he personifies the created order. He personifies nature as groaning, as giving uh, expression, uh, moaning, of feeling pain and sorrow. 
Then in verse 23, Paul moves from talking about the created order, talking about nature, and he moves to talking about Christians. And what does he say about us in verse 23? That we groan too, that we groan inwardly. We feel this on the inside. And haven't you felt that? In your own suffering or when you see the suffering of other people, just the, the visceral, in your gut, pain that just expresses itself and, and whatever words come out or no words at all, just, just a sigh. Or we say, come Lord Jesus, or how long, oh Lord, we groan inwardly. A neat note on the context here, if you look at verse 26, we see the word groaning appear one more time. So there's three groanings in chapter eight. and 26, it's the Holy Spirit who groans. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So God groans too. We suffer with Christ. God's not far off from this. He feels it too. So there's all things that we can see as Paul is describing the suffering of this present time, but the big theme that emerges in this section is what? Waiting. That's what marks this suffering in this present time is waiting. It says the creation waits in verse 19. It says that we wait in verse 23. But notice it's not just waiting, is it? It's waiting with eager longing in verse 19. Or waiting eagerly in verse 23. It's waiting on your tiptoes. It's waiting like when you get your kids up and you say, okay, we're going to open presents but you gotta stay in your room until we get everything ready. This is how my parents would always do it to us. I think it was kind of a method of torture. <laughs> Me and my brothers, we would have to be in the door and we're like trying to look through the cracks and see if we can see any glimmer of anything. Did they get us that bike? Did we get that thing that we wanted? We're waiting eagerly until the door busts open and we can run and we can go see what is there underneath the tree. It's that kind of waiting. Where Paul says it's the waiting of a mother in labor. That's the metaphor that he's using. This is a common Old Testament metaphor. And it's so perfect because labor hurts. So I've been told. <laughs> it's this increasing pain that comes in waves and it, and it gets worse as the end gets closer, but there is an end. There is an end to your labor. And everyone who's been through it knows this. You know that, there, that there's gonna be a moment where this stops. This isn't forever. And in fact, not only will it stop, but when it's done, you get something amazing. Jesus uses the same metaphor in John 16. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world so also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. That's how Paul describes the suffering of this present time. Yes, it's bad, but it will end. And when it ends, you get joy that lasts forever. So what does the suffering of this present time give way to? Well, let's fill in that other side of our chart. What is the glory that will be revealed to us? 
So look at verse 19, where, where Paul says there was futility in the creation. He says there will be the revealing of the sons of God. Do you know who that's talking about? That's you. That's you if you're a Christian. You are what the creation is waiting for, for you to be revealed as you're really supposed to be. Verse 21 gets to the same idea. Where there was bondage in the suffering of this present time, in the glory that will be revealed, there's what? Freedom. You are set free from your enslavement. The creation will be set free from corruption. There will be no more wearing out. There will be no more decay. There will be no more death. But look again at verse 21. How does this freedom come? It is the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's our glory. That's talking about us. This is the same thing as the revealing of the sons of God. This is, this is talking about the glory that we are going to have. This is the glory that we will possess when we are at last renewed and conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, like what we were always meant to be, like what Adam was supposed to be and failed to be. Church, this, this passage is saying that the creation is waiting on tiptoe for you to be what God is making you into. Because when that happens, then we will exercise the right dominion over the world that God intended for us to have. And it will mean freedom and purpose and glory for the whole created order. So brothers and sisters, think about what that means for how significant you are. Think about what this means about how important you are. Human beings are the crown jewel of God's creation. He gave us dominion over the whole earth. And when we failed to be what we were supposed to be, it plunged the whole earth into darkness. Do you understand how much power that means you have? How important you are in God's plan? And so even now the creation is waiting for the restoration of all things and it's going to come through you. Ultimately, this is God's plan and God is going to be at work, but God has determined that he is going to renew the heavens and the earth through your appearing. You are going to be so glorious and so powerful and so good and so righteous because you will look like Jesus Christ, the true and better Adam. You are going to be so glorious that the creation is waiting eagerly for you to be what you're supposed to be. You are the Christmas present underneath creation's tree. Just waiting for you to be what you're going to be. Groaning for God to give birth to what you are. But it's not just the creation that's groaning. Paul says, no, we're groaning too. Our groaning, our inward pain is really a longing for us to be what we're supposed to be. If you're here and you're not a believer, I hope you can to identify with that feeling, that groaning, that inwardness. Let me tell you, that's there for a reason. You were not made for this world as it is. You were made for a better world. And God will give it to you. 
God will give it to you if you believe in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says to us Christians in verse 23, those who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that we're waiting for two very important things, for our adoption as sons and daughters and for the redemption of our bodies. Now I think the adoption one is interesting. He's saying we're waiting for our adoption, but he actually just said that we have already been adopted or at least received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. I think this is an already and a, and a not yet thing. Already we know God as our Father. Already we have been made heirs with Christ, but there's more coming for our adoption. We're gonna receive the inheritance. We're gonna get to move into the house. We're gonna get to be with our Father forever. And in that day we will we will be right. So Paul is saying that we're waiting for our adoption, but then he couples it together with this other thing, with the redemption of our bodies. And this is what this has all been pummeling towards. That our bodies will be made right. Even though we die, and we'll be laid in the ground, and that enslavement to corruption will have its effect on us, we will be redeemed. We will, we will be raised. We will be made immortal, <coughs> imperishable, glorious. And that's our hope in the face of death. We don't have to walk in fear of death. And we don't grieve as those who have no hope when we lose those people that we love. If they have died in Christ, their body will be redeemed. And if you die in Christ, your body will be redeemed. And if you're not dead yet, even now you feel that enslavement to corruption, don't you? Even now, you feel that this body, it's not right. We get sick, it gets hurt. But there's a day coming, and that's what we wait for. And so Paul's, Paul's point with all of this is just to, to try and capture your imagination. In the face of suffering, what do you do? You think about what's going to come. Even now, think about what's waiting for you and wait for it more. Think about that present underneath the tree. Just wait for it. And so we say, well, okay, what are we, what are we trying to get in our mind? What are we envisioning? We could turn to a place like Revelation 21. This is a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Do you feel pain right now? Do you feel suffering right now? Are you crying tears even this morning? I'm sorry. It's not supposed to be like that. And one day God is going to take it away. Oh, that echoes a prophecy in Isaiah 65. Where Isaiah says, for behold, or God says through Isaiah, behold, I create 
new heavens and a new earth, for the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Does that sound like Romans 8, 18? All of this stuff that you're going through, it's going to go away. And all of the stuff that's coming is so good that you're not even going to remember it. So can that help you get through what you're going through right now? Can that give you just enough comfort to keep on going? Well, that's about the whole creation. That's about the new heavens and the new earth. But remember, it's not just the creation that is going to be renewed. It is our own bodies. So listen to this. This is 1 Corinthians 15. This is also what you have in mind as you think about the glory that will be revealed to you. There Paul says, behold, Christians, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's what's coming. That's what you are waiting for. That is our hope. That's what Paul says in verse 24 of our text. He says, for in this hope, the hope of the redemption of our bodies and the restoration of the whole created order, in this hope we were saved. That's a fascinating little statement. It's past tense. We already have our salvation. We have already been saved. How? By believing in the good news of Jesus Christ and the eternal redemption that he has already won for us and being raised from the dead. We have already been saved. Remember what the angel said to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1? Joseph Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Do you know that that's why Jesus is named Jesus? The name Jesus, Yeshua, it means Yahweh saves. That's why God the Son came into the world was to save us from our sin, to save us from the very source of everything that is wrong, everything that is broken in this world, to save us from everything that happened in Genesis 3. And he didn't save us by standing at a distance and just, you know, lobbing bombs at our sin. He saved us by entering into our suffering. We suffer with Christ because Christ has already suffered with us. He was born as a virgin, or born of a virgin. He grew up as a man of sorrows, acquainted with suffering. Jesus lost people that he loved. He wept. 
for sadness, from sin in this world. And he who knew no sin took on our sin and suffered all the consequences of the fall in our place when he died on the cross. And you remember what happened when he was hanging there on the cross? Darkness. Darkness. That was the darkest day in history. And they laid him in a dark tomb. And it seemed like on that day, darkness had won. That sin had won. That the devil had won. But on that darkest day in history began the most dramatic reversal in eternity. Three days later, God the Son rose from the dead. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Jesus defeated it. And he is raised in glorious lights. And we still have many months of winter ahead of us. But we know because Jesus' body has already been redeemed that ours will be redeemed like his. And that the work that God plans to do in restoring the whole creation through a better Adam, it's already begun. Jesus Christ has died and Jesus is living now and seated on the throne of David. And Paul says it was that hope that we were saved into. Believing the gospel isn't just to be saved from wrath. Well, that's a good thing. But it's to be saved to something so glorious that words can't even describe it. It is to be saved to a hope that we are waiting for. That's part of the gospel that we believe that everything is going to get better. And so by thinking about that future hope, we have strength to endure today. That's how he concludes this passage. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We don't have it yet. Otherwise it wouldn't be a hope. It would just be reality, okay? It's, it's not a reality. It's our future. And we're waiting for it. We're waiting eagerly. And we're waiting with patience. That word patience, it, it can also be translated, it is translated in other parts of your Bible as endurance or perseverance. It's a word that often implies that you are enduring suffering. That it is a patience that is sitting under affliction, waiting for it to be over. And I think that's Paul, what Paul is getting at here. We are waiting with endurance. We are waiting through the suffering of this present time because we know what is waiting for us at the end. The scholar Tom Schreiner, he summarizes Paul's argument like this. The realization of this glory is still future, but certain. And given the wonder of the glory awaiting believers, they should endure present sufferings with eagerness, knowing that all suffering in the present can be borne because the reward before them is incomparably delightful. That is our hope. That is what we're waiting for. And, and you may be here this very moment feeling the frigid wind of winter in your life. 
But if you have believed in Christ, I promise you spring is coming. This will be over and it will give birth to something glorious. It will give birth to you in glory. So let's wait for that hope with patience. Lord God, we thank you for this hope. We thank you for our salvation in Christ and I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us with this good news that it won't be like this forever. We thank you for Jesus coming and we thank you that he is coming again and when he comes at that last trumpet, we will be changed. So God, please give us a better understanding, a better picture in our mind of what is waiting for us. And, and maybe for some who haven't yet put their trust in Jesus, God, I pray that you would save them to that hope. And God, for all of us, give us a joy, not in our circumstances, but in, in what you will do, what you have done. Give us joy that transcends everything else that's going on today. Give us a joy that is rooted in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.